Matthew 14 can be found in the Bibles in the chairs if you would like to use one on page 820. 820. Many of us who have been followers of Jesus for quite some time are no doubt familiar with one of Jesus' disciples named Thomas, who obtained for himself a rather unfortunate and infamous nickname. You know what I'm talking about? Thomas was one of the apostles of Jesus. He is listed in Matthew 10, just a few chapters before our text today, as one of those who was given divine authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick miraculously. He had this divine power granted to him with which he ministered to many, and he had the words of Christ that he shared with many. And he went and did this, following the Lord, following the commission God had given to him. We don't actually have a lot of information about Thomas other than him being listed several times in the Gospels in an account like Matthew 10 and its parallels where the disciples are, or the apostles are sent out to serve. But the church, the history of the church and the tradition, if you will, that's been passed down or these oral passing down and written passing down of stories also tells us that later on, Thomas pursued missions in India, and he helped establish and start seven different churches there. Church history also tells us that he died as a martyr. He was pierced by spears because of his devotion to follow and preach Christ later on in that Indian region. But he had this one really unfortunate slip-up where he did not at first believe the news that Jesus had risen. And he said in John 20, unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails, and unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And with that, infamous slip-up, he gets this nickname, Doubting Thomas. In fact, I suspect that if you have been a student of the Bible, a follower of Jesus for very long, you rarely refer to Thomas without the doubting. The poor guy's been stuck with this nickname forever. How would you like to have an eternal nickname based on your worst slip-up? That's a scary thought. Maybe in heaven we'll make sure to simply call him Thomas, or maybe Apostle Thomas, without the nickname. And I couldn't help but think of poor Tommy, as I'll call him, as I was studying our text for today and preparing this sermon. How big of a deal was Thomas's doubt? Clearly, to say about the risen Lord, I won't believe it until I see it, is at least somewhat problematic. After everything else that Thomas had seen, after everything else that Jesus had said and that he had heard Jesus say, but is it fair, at least, for him to have gotten such a moniker stamped on him forever? Is doubt a big deal? 
Well, our passage today is not merely about doubt, but it definitely addresses doubt. And I think that what this passage is about is the ultimate answer to doubt. Chapter 14 began with this narrative of John the Baptist's execution and Jesus' attempt to get away, to grieve at the news of his cousin's death, and then Jesus' change of plans after being moved with compassion on the hungry and the sick. And when we get to verses 22 and 23 of Matthew 14, Jesus finally gets the chance to get away and alone and to pray. And so what happens in our text, it's important to remember, takes place directly after the events of Jesus' miraculous feeding of the great crowd, which happens directly after He healed many in that crowd, which happens right after Jesus tried to get away in order to be alone because He had just been told of His cousin's execution. In these verses, 22 through 33, that Diane read for us just a moment ago, I see nine plot points, as far as I can tell. And the first is the opening of this story where Jesus sends his disciples into a trial. In verse 22, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. The stormy part of the story, which is one of the most famous and oft-referenced portions of this passage, only happened because he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And so in order to get this story where Jesus is walking on the water and where Peter at least briefly joins him, there has to be a situation in which walking on water would be needed. And while our text, as well as Mark's parallel in his chapter 6, doesn't describe the situation on the water with the word storm per se, it does describe waves and winds in such a way that indicates that the situation on the sea was hardly a comfortable one. And so what I'm saying is that the relative danger in which the disciples found themselves on the sea and in which Peter found himself once he started walking on the water, was a situation, listen to this, handpicked for them by Jesus. He instructed them to get in the boat and go. And as a result, later in the night, here are these choppy waves and uncooperative winds that are making it hard for his disciples to go where they need to go, and there's trouble. All because... Jesus sent them. And we'll come back to that soon, but the next plot point in the story is that Jesus wants to pray in solitude. Verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, which also is after he sent his disciples into the boat, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. And we have to remember what had happened in the previous passage. Of which I've already, to which I've already referred. Jesus had just learned that John the Baptist, perhaps his very best earthly friend, had been executed at Herod's order. 
And going back to verse 13 of Matthew 14, what does it say was his response to that news? It says, when he heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And then, of course, it goes on to say that he was followed by the crowds and couldn't be alone. But he wants to be alone. He wants to get away. He wants to pray. He wants to talk with his father. He wants to bring to his father his grief, his sorrow. This beloved father with whom he enjoyed perfect, loving acceptance and fellowship. He wanted to pray in solitude, but before he could get away, the huge crowd caught up with him. And instead of making sure that he got the quote-unquote self-care that he might have thought he needed, he turned and he healed the sick that were there. And then he fed them all in an astonishing and miraculous display of compassion and power. But when verse 23 comes around, it's been a huge and exhausting day filled with hard work and emotional strain and unfulfilled desires, or you could say, I suppose, unmet expectations. And finally, verse 23, He gets to go up onto a mountain, or I suppose we might consider them being in the Rocky Mountain region, a hill, and pray. And if you love Jesus and you feel for what He's been through, the end of verse 23 is quite satisfying. When evening came, He was there alone. Oh, I'm so happy for you, Jesus, in this moment. He's alone. He finally gets to spend time with his father. He finally gets to pour out his heart to his father. He finally gets to speak with him in solitude. Perhaps, we don't know, to weep, to sob because of the death of his cousin. What what a, a holy thing it would be to have heard Jesus pray in those moments. To see Him commune with His Father. To see Him speak His sorrows. To see Him share His desires and to look to His Father for peace and for comfort. Oh, what we could learn to eavesdrop on such a prayer. But, in the next plot point, the scene changes dramatically where we see Jesus as the sovereign creator. Verses 24 and 25 says, if you, if you take, this, take the second part, that ending part of verse 23 first. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So now the scene shifts to his disciples back on the boat while Jesus is in the mountain or on the hill or whatever you want to call it, praying. We cut, as it were, to the boat beaten by the waves and the wind against those on the boat. And then, verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. By the time Jesus is in prayer, the disciples, it says, are far away from land. He sends them on the boat. They're far away from land. They're dealing with some level of hazardous weather, especially related to wind and its adverse effects on being able to navigate with a boat in the water. 
And we don't know exactly what time it was that Jesus sent them away in the boat or how long exactly Jesus was on the mountain praying, but we do know that by the time Jesus started making His way toward them, the text says it was the fourth watch of the night. We don't use phrases like that very often, but that phrase essentially refers to what we think of as between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's what the fourth watch was. Now, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and had a hard time getting back to sleep? I have. You have. And have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and dared to look at the clock? Sometimes I'm hoping that the clock will show that it is much earlier in the night so that I feel certain, or at least more probable, that I will get back to sleep and have several hours left in bed. But if you dare to look at the clock and see, say, 3.30 or 4 or 4.30, it's not usually a great feeling. (laughs) Typically, it means that there's a little bit of night left, at least enough that in theory you should be able to get an hour, a couple hours maybe, depending on the time or, or your you know, personal physical makeup, you're supposed to be getting some needed rest, and yet here you are at 4.30 awake. I'm not usually supposed to wake up until Kate and I wake up at around 5 every day. And so if it's 4.30, it's like, oh man, I missed out on a half an hour or whatever it might be. The Jewish culture referred to this fourth watch as the worst time of night between 3 and 6 a.m as the most vulnerable part of the night, as the most exhausting part of the night, the most difficult to deal with if you're awake and not supposed to be. Now, obviously, you and I know people who work a night shift and are able to adjust to working to those hours depending on what's going on. But for me, between 3 and 6 is not exactly the time that I want to be fighting winds and waves in the dark. That's when I want to be snuggled in my bed, if possible. But it's the time that the Savior in our text engages with His creation in His sovereignty as the Creator. So let's not bury the lead, first of all, as it were. What we have here is Jesus literally walking on the water. That's the, that's the lead story here. So let's not bury that. The boat is far offshore, and Jesus is on the shore. Now, if you or I are on the shore, and there's a boat that we want or need to get to that's far away from the shore, unless we've got another boat or some sort of flotation device, our only option is swimming. But not for Jesus. He just walks straight to that boat. You know why? Because he made that water. Because he's the creator. And water does what water's creator wants water to do. If King Jesus wants the molecular molecular structure of H2O to change so that it hardens, so that he has a pathway to walk on, then it happens. Or if King Jesus doesn't want to do anything science-y like that to happen and to just miraculously not be subject in that moment to the laws of physics that he wrote, then he gets to do that because he is the sovereign one. He is the king. And so he just walks on the water. Now he 
could have done that every day of his life, but he did it specifically here. And it's an astonishing enough thing on its own. But there's some pretty vivid imagery and symbolism here as well, such as the fact that he was walking on the water in the fourth watch of the night, a time of danger, a time of difficulty, a time of fatigue, a time of fear, as his disciples are in that boat struggling with that fear and fatigue and are in danger and are facing difficulty. And here, the sovereign ruler of all creation steps into, or I suppose it might be better said, onto the dark and choppy waters with power, with certainty, with calmness, with confidence, approaching his followers to help them. And think about the imagery here. Jesus is on a mountain communing with his Father. And he descends, you might say condescends, from that place of communion with his Father in order to enter into the place of tribulation and trouble of his beloved people to save them. Brothers and sisters, isn't that the Gospel? That Jesus came down to His people to meet them in their trouble, to take upon Himself their trouble, to engage with their trouble, and to conquer it. And with a loving hand to reach in, or in Peter's case, as we'll see in just a moment, reach down and save them. Oh my friends, what a mighty Savior we have. What a glorious And as we sang a moment ago, good and gracious King who has descended to earth, who has stepped into our darkness, into our danger, into our fear, into our fatigue, and He has redeemed us from the windy seas of this broken world and our sinful natures. And so here is Jesus walking to His disciples in the dark, the fourth watch of the night, on the waves and in the wind. But as cool and exciting as that is for us to read and meditate on, as we did for just these last couple of moments, for the disciples, it was a frightful sight. Verse 26 says that when they saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Give them a little credit, they can't see very well in that environment. Between 3 and 6 a.m. is a time of darkness, I guess depending on sunrise that day. And remember, there weren't any high-powered spotlights on that boat. Some of the boats in our day can have the capability of shining a bright light off into the distance, or I suppose you could compare, to, uh, compare it to the fact that we today carry flashlights around on us. I remember when I was a kid, it was kind of a big deal to have a mag light, one of those huge, massive uh, flashlights that looked like a lightsaber. Well, now we've just got flashlights on our phones, not nearly as high-powered as a mag light. But the point is, it is much more common for us to have the ability to shine our lights into a place where it is hard to see. But for them, they didn't have anything like that on their boat. Perhaps they had 
some sort of um, um, fuel to light a fire to, but in no way were they able to shine a light on what was off in the distance. And so when this figure is eventually becoming more and more clear in the darkness of night and in the chopping waves and in the winds and in the moving of their boat, it is actually a little bit sensible to be afraid of what they were seeing. Why? Because people don't walk on water. That's not normal. Jesus isn't normal. Jesus' power can actually be rather terrifying. And so the disciples were terrified. Imagine what they're saying to each other in that moment. What on earth is going on? It looks like there's a person out there. What are you talking about? How could there be a person out there? That's impossible. People don't walk on water. Well, it looks like a person. If it's not a person, what is it? Is it a ghost? Going back and forth and concerned about what they're seeing. The power of Jesus being a often terrifying thing reminds me of the portion in C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories where in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children are working through this concept of the one to whom they are supposed to look for hope being a lion, a lion named Aslan. And they ask the beavers whom they're with if Aslan is safe. And of course, Lewis wrote this story somewhat allegorically to parallel Aslan in that story to Jesus in the real world. And they ask the beavers if Aslan is safe. And we get this line that is somewhat famous about Aslan not hardly being safe, but I think it's most powerfully understood, that line, in its connection with Jesus when you hear the whole conversation. So just listen for just a moment. The children say to the beavers, is he quite safe? And no, I'm not going to do the British accent. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, there's nothing safe about King Jesus. His power is astonishing. And when, like the disciples in that moment, you can't see clearly what he is up to, it can actually be quite frightening. But his intentions are always good. And we see that in the next plot point here where Jesus speaks in response to their fear with assurance and power. Verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Three powerful phrases that Jesus speaks here. In the middle of their fright, in the dark, in the wind, and on the waves, Jesus speaks assurance to them and communicates His power. That phrase there, translated in the ESV, take heart heart is just one word in Greek, and it can also be translated, be of good courage, or 
be courageous. Stay strong. Take heart. It's basically synonymous to the phrase, the third phrase there, do not be afraid. It's a call to set aside fear. But why? We've got these bookend phrases. Take heart and do not be afraid. The reason is in the middle. Because it is I. The reason to not be afraid is the presence of Jesus. There's a linguistic case to be made here though that the phrase translated for us, it is I, means more than simply I'm here. As in physically, hey, it's me, you know me, I'm right here. Because the simplest and most literal interpretation of the Greek in this moment in the text is this phrase, I am. Could it be that Jesus was making a somewhat veiled reference to His divine identity and nature? Could He have been referring to the fact that the one that was walking towards them on the water wasn't just their earthly master, wasn't just their spiritual leader, religious teacher, or their dear friend speaking to them, but God Himself. To say, I'm here, or it is I, or I am, should have been mightily assuring for them. It should have been a clear reference to the fact of His immense power, His divine power over the winds and waves, and assured them. Friends, the assurance of Jesus is necessarily connected to the presence of Jesus and to the deity or the divineness of Jesus. You know, he may very well have been making that veiled reference to his divinity with the way he announced himself translated for us in our English based on what is written in the Greek later on than what he actually said as this I am statement. But even if he wasn't going so far as making a reference to his deity, The fact that Jesus said, I'm here, should have been enough to calm the nerves of the weariest sailor, or in our case, perhaps in this room, the most worn out mom, or the most stressed out work supervisor, or the most exhausted church minister. Friends, we need this assurance in our own troubles and trials It is I, Jesus says to us in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our suffering, our fears, our anxieties, our doubts and distresses. I'm here, he says. And notice, they're afraid and he does not calm the waters yet. He doesn't always say, I'm here, let me stop the storm for you. But he does always say, I'm here. The storm may need to play itself out according to his divine plan, but his presence is always with us. And so therefore, that 
last phrase, do not be afraid, kind of like a bookended partner for the first phrase, take heart. Set aside your fears, he says, because I am here. And notice that it is both assuring and authoritative. The phrase, do not be afraid, is an imperative. It is a command. Do not be afraid. How many of us fail to regard a phrase like this as a command? How many of us need to realize that though there are some fears that are sensible and can be wise, such as having a healthy fear of a rattlesnake, I see this guy on social media who takes videos of himself walking through the swamps of Florida and Louisiana, taking video of these exotic, dangerous creatures and walking up to them and picking up the snake or tapping the spider on the back or getting close to the alligator. And I go, you're nuts. (laughs) There are healthy kinds of fear that are wise, but many of our fears are the kinds of fears that Jesus commands us to stop. Fear of man, that's an explicitly biblical one. What about fear of the left ruining our country? What about fearfulness about what might happen to our kids? There's all kinds of things that Jesus says, do not be afraid. And He says it both assuringly and authoritatively. It's meant to comfort and convict Well, what happens next? Peter believes, then doubts, and then sinks. Peter answered him after Jesus says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. That's amazing. But when Peter saw the wind... He was afraid and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. This is probably the second most famous part of this story. At least to some extent, Peter believes. But there is a clue here that he started with some doubt. Because he says, if it is you. And of course, we've got to give him a little credit. It's dark. There's wind. But he's not quite sure. He's making a kind of prove it statement but there's faith in there because he's basically saying that he knows that if it really is Jesus he'll have the power to make him walk on the water too and that's exactly what happens he walks on the water he exercises faith Jesus says come and Peter says okay here I come he gets out of the boat he starts to walk on the water another amazing astonishing display of Jesus's power at work through the faith of one of his followers until he begins to doubt. And what does Peter do? It says that he saw the wind. He trusted his eyes more than he trusted what Jesus' presence does. He trusted Jesus. Listen to this. Listen carefully. He trusted Jesus until he began to feel and see how scary it can be to walk with Jesus in a storm. 
Because it's not that Peter didn't believe that Jesus was there at all. There's no reason to think that based on the text. But the storm, or if you don't want to use the word storm, the wind distracted him from the fact that Jesus was there. Jesus never left. Jesus was there the whole time. But Peter took his gaze away from Jesus, at least for that moment. And that's when he began to sink, when he doubted the assuring words of Jesus. And if you're wondering why we would consider what Peter did doubt, you see it in what Jesus' response to him is in verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out His hand and took hold of Him, saying to Him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's the seventh plot point here where Jesus saves and then scolds. I took that phrase from one of my favorite commentators, Doug O'Donnell. It's a pretty pithy way of putting it. Jesus saves, then scolds. You see the order of Jesus' response here? First, He graciously responds to Peter's cry for help and saves him. Praise the Lord that He saves before He scolds. But He does scold Peter. And I wonder if when we read this and really think about it for a few minutes and think about all the grace and love and gentleness of Jesus, if this would surprise us. Where we might expect the Jesus who said just a few chapters earlier, come to Me, all you who are heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn of Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That this same Jesus might therefore say to Peter in this moment, it's okay, I understand. It was your first time walking on water after all. But he doesn't say that. He says, why did you doubt? And he says to Peter, oh, you of little faith. It stings a little. He calls out Peter for doubt. He might as well be saying, did you already forget that while I'm with you, you have no need to fear? I mean, just a moment ago, I said, do not be afraid. I'm here. I just said it. Kind of feels like that sort of a little bit of a scold, doesn't it? Parents, doesn't this remind all of us of the times that we get exhausted about having to tell our children something again that we literally just told them a moment ago? And parents, before you get all self-righteous about how your children do this, doesn't it also then remind you about how often we do the same thing with our Lord. We hear His words. We believe them. We even trust them. Until we don't. Until our actions, our words, betray a lack of trust in Him. Something distracts us. Something grabs our attention. That strained relationship with somebody. That tightening budget, the problem going on at work, the sickness that is troubling your family, the exhaustion that you're feeling, your depression, your anxiety, whatever it is, and we begin to doubt the goodness and wisdom and power of Jesus, even though He says, I'm here. Don't be afraid. 
And you know, you and I might stubbornly insist that we're still trusting Him and that we're not doubting, but our actions and words and thoughts would communicate otherwise. And here's Jesus, always gracious to help. Always gracious to reach out with His hand and save us. But sometimes, through His written Word, perhaps through a sense of conviction that comes with a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ, or listening to a sermon on a Sunday, or some time in prayer, through that conviction, through His Spirit, He also says, even as He assures us of His presence, but why did you doubt? Friends, this is an important line to walk carefully. Christian friend, don't ever forget that no matter what doubts you're facing, no matter what you're afraid of, if you are in Christ, He will always love you. He will never stop saving you. You will always be His beloved child. You have been transformed into a child of His having once been His enemy. Praise God. We are made new. We are now the righteousness of God according to the righteousness of Christ. He will always love you. He will never stop saving you. If you are His child, nothing can change that. But friends, don't let that lead you to ignore His correction and instruction. If He is saying to you, Oh, my beloved child, don't doubt. Don't be afraid. Then listen to him. As the story begins to finish, we see this beautiful eighth plot point where creation bows to Jesus. When they got into the boat, Peter and Jesus, the wind ceased. Pretty simple. Jesus steps into the boat and the wind is gone. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't stop the wind and waves until He's in the boat with them. That's fascinating. And the text doesn't give us a lot of information about that, and I actually didn't find a whole lot about it in the authors that I read. Perhaps He simply wanted them to wait until that moment. Perhaps there's something symbolic about the peace that comes when you take His hand and welcome Him into your symbolic boat. But the point here is simply that the sovereign creator who made the waters and made the winds that were troubling the boat that the disciples were in, those same waves and winds were subject to him because he was the creator, is the creator of them. His disciples, moments before, were subject to those winds and waves. But when Jesus got in the boat with them, those winds and waves were subject to him. And how did the disciples respond? They respond with worship. That's the ninth plot point here. And I'm going to come back to this in just a moment, but just note it for now. The amazing power on display in the life and ministry of Jesus at this event turned those troubled sailors into eager worshipers. Amen and hallelujah. Amazing. Truly, you are the Son of God, they say. 
Now, this is all well and good for us to learn, either for the first time or to be reminded of for the umpteenth time, depending on how long you've been following or and or learning about Jesus. But friends, unless we engage with Scripture and apply it to our own lives and repent where we may need to repent, embrace Jesus where we need to embrace Jesus in a fresh sense or for the first time, then this will have been merely a Bible class and an intellectual exercise that will do us no good in our lives. So I have four lessons for us based on this text. The first is that doubts can sink disciples. I say that with some trepidation. Because I am not saying, listen carefully, please, I am not saying that any moment of doubt that you might have will make you no longer a disciple. I am not saying that. But in a very real sense, Peter nearly sank because of his doubt. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, or at least claim to be one, doubt can lead to ruin. That's what I'm trying to say. To be careful with your doubts. To beware doubt. To pray for God to keep you from doubt. And to help you when you do doubt. Because, friends, please hear me. Christians do doubt. Doubting doesn't make you no longer a Christian. In fact, I'll say, beware a teacher or preacher or author that would tell you that no real Christian would doubt God at any time. And if someone is giving you the impression that there's this like extra advanced level of spiritual maturity or Christian power that you can get to where you won't doubt anymore, just beware that. It's more complicated than that. And here's how I think of it. Doubt is both normal and not okay. It's both. Some of our greatest heroes of the faith, whether biblical characters in the inspired words of Scripture or other Christians that we have accounts of throughout church history, have struggled with doubt in notable ways. And so we cannot conclude other than doubt is normal and understandable. We've got to be very careful in our church and in our own hearts and homes and families to be careful not to promote some sort of shameful stigma on anyone struggling with doubt, particularly in a time of great trial. Jesus corrected Peter. His words stung but he saved him first. He helped him up first. So be careful not to stand judgmentally over those gasping for air and drowning. And just tell them, if they stop doubting, they'll stop drowning. No, take their hand. Comfort them. Do whatever you can to help them up. But the fact also remains that doubt, even though it's normal, is not okay it still ultimately boils down to a reflection of a lack of trust in Jesus. And friends, Jesus is literally the one person in the history of history who you can always trust. Who there is, and I mean this, 
never a good reason to doubt. There's never a good reason to doubt him. You could doubt the church. You can doubt the people in the church. You can doubt your parents. You can doubt your kids. You can doubt everybody else. There is never a good enough reason to doubt Jesus because he is always totally trustworthy. We live in a fallen world. We remain tied to our fleshly bodies. We continue to struggle, as the Scripture says, with the sins that so easily beset us. Which makes it totally understandable for us to doubt sometimes. And this ought to be, brothers and sisters, we, don't have, we have a lot of people out of town and sick today, so hopefully they'll hear this in a recording later, or you'll pass it on to them. May we never be a church where it is not safe, so to speak, to express our doubts and fears with one another. We must be a church that reaches down and helps each other up when we're struggling. Where we do not feel that we will be shamed or judged or stigmatized for our struggles. But friends, we must also not be a church where it is excusable to remain unendingly doubtful. Because King Jesus has given us reason after reason, proof after proof that we can trust Him. And He comes to us walking on the very winds and waves that cause us pain and struggle and doubt and says, I'm here. Don't be afraid. So doubts can sink disciples. Beware your doubt. Second lesson is that the key to trials is trusting the king. In his very old commentary on this passage, the reformer John Calvin said this about the fears of the disciples in this passage and Jesus' assurance to them. I have it on the screen. And here's what he says. The reason why we... I have two we's there on accident. Pardon me. The reason why we are disturbed by sudden alarms, such such as winds and waves, is that our ingratitude and wickedness... Oh boy, John prevent us from employing as shields the innumerable gifts of God, which, if they were turned to proper account, would give us all necessary support. Did you follow that? My little typos there, I'm sure, didn't help. The reason these things that alarm us alarm us so much is because we're not thankful And our sinful hearts and that unthankfulness keeps us from seeing all the gifts of God that He has already given to us. And if we turned our sight to those things and took account, so to speak, of those things, we would have the support we need to deal with our doubts. The works of God. The nature of God. Looking to them, taking stock of them, and therefore being supported by what we know about God. All that He is and all that He has done. In other words, Calvin is saying if we would just trust the evidence, trust the evidence of the innumerable gifts of God that have already and previously been given to us, perhaps we wouldn't be so troubled by our trials. And brothers and sisters, I hope I've been clear. I'm not saying you can go through life without any uh, doubt ever, and that's just the normal thing for people. I'm not saying that. 
But when we're struggling with doubts, when we're having a hard time in a trial, perhaps it would be easier to get through it if we would simply look to what is true about God. And sadly, as Calvin points out, in rather stark and poignant terms, we are often much quicker to turn to ungratefulness, or he uses the word ingratitude. And even sinful thoughts, which is what he's talking about with wickedness there. And trusting what our limited senses can see and process rather than the incontrovertible data that abounds around us regarding the goodness and wisdom and power of our King. And that's the third lesson. To remember that sovereignty transcends what you can see. The disciples' possible explanation for what was going on in that moment with the storm and of course in Peter's case as well, their explanation or their interpretation of what was going on was dependent on their senses which were, are, finite. Of course they couldn't fathom a person walking on the water. It wouldn't even come to mind. They'd never seen anything like that. Because their senses are limited. Their senses were finite. Of course the winds and waves were wearing them out. They had human bodies that could only do so much with the sails and the rudder and the anchor and whatever else they might have been dealing with. Of course Peter's observation of dangerous waters and winds around him led him to be frightened about whether or not he really was going to survive this excursion on water walking. But the sovereign power of Jesus transcends what we can see, what we can touch, what we can understand in our finite minds. And the sovereignty of Jesus should lead us to believe in Him, to trust in Him, because He goes beyond what we're used to. He goes beyond what we might naturally, logically conclude. He goes beyond what these senses that we have in our fallen and broken bodies are programmed to tell us senses that often go to the worst case scenario instead of being assured that no matter what, Jesus is in control and so there's no need for fear. There may be some wise steps we need to take to do our best as a human person moving around in a fallen world to avoid certain kinds of danger to the best of our ability, but Jesus is in control and I do not need to fret. I do not need to immediately go to worst case scenario all the time. There's no need for fear. And of course, it's understandable that for so many of us that have gone through various things in our lives, the traumatic things that we, traumatic things that we have experienced have scarred us and left our senses programmed in an additionally fearful way, sometimes constantly worried about what might happen instead of remembering that the sovereignty of Jesus is literally always good. So remember, dear Christian friend, no matter what has happened to you, our sovereign Christ has literally never messed up. Never has He done a single thing wrong. And you will one day, with your glorified mind, be able to look back at every single step that has ever happened in your life with total assurance and with your own conclusion in your own glorified logic that everything He did was right. Friend, embrace the sovereignty of Christ. 
Let it wash over you, as it were, with peace and hope. Trust in the transcendent sovereignty of Jesus more than you trust your temporal and finite senses. And you know what will result? Worship. Belief will bring worship. That's the fourth lesson. Worship was the response of those in the boat. Verse 33 describes. And you know, those in the boat may have been just the disciples. It's also possible, I hadn't even thought of this. A commentator I read suggested it. That there were others in that boat who didn't know Jesus. Who knows? Maybe they were sailors whose boat they commissioned to get across to the other side. And if that's the case, then those others in the boat who were not Jesus' disciples also would have seen all of this and would have been included in this phrase. Those in the boat worshipped Him and said, truly you are the Son of God. Wouldn't that be amazing if there were those in that moment who were converted, as it were, to become followers of Jesus? And regardless of whether or not the boat passengers were already Jesus' followers or became believers that day, the point remains the same. It's the fourth lesson that belief in the divine nature and saving power of Jesus as the Son of God will lead you to worship. A response of worship. Eventually, a life of worship. And so friend, whether you are here this morning a follower of Jesus, simply in need of this reminder from God's Word of Jesus' worthiness of worship that flows from belief, or if you're someone here today who has never embraced Jesus truly, whose doubts are keeping you away from Him, causing you, as it were, to sink, the message is the same. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Jesus is, as these boat passengers said, the Son of God. God the Son. He is the sovereign one over the waves and the winds. He is the King of God's kingdom. He is everything He is, everything He said, everything He's done cries out for your trust. And so, either for the first time or with fresh commitment today, trust in Jesus. Belief. Belief is that solution to doubt. It may feel like a bit of a cop-out to you. We want some sort of microwave version of, of a solution to our doubts. But the solution is belief in what has been revealed about Jesus. Belief in what He has revealed through His words and through His works. And belief that will then transform your doubt into worship. That's the solution. Doubt transformed into worship through believing what is revealed. And whatever your response is to these words today, we're going to take a moment to pray in just a moment. Uh, I'll lead in prayer and then we'll pray quietly for just a moment. But if you'd like to talk about this further, or you just want someone to take a moment and pray with you, our prayer team will be in the back ready to serve you. You'll see them with the lanyard on that says prayer team, and they are prepared and ready to pray with you or talk with you further. Don't leave today without pursuing the transformation of your doubts into worship. Let's pray. Lord, we're amazed at this story that reminds us of the great power and sovereignty of 
our Christ. We are convicted about how often, even as Christians, we doubt whether or not you really will do what you have already said you will do. We doubt your intentions when your intentions have been made clear at the cross. And so, for any of us who need to repent, help us to do so. For any of us who may need to turn and follow Jesus for the first time, help them to do so. And for all of us, may we be amazed at and uh, motivated to follow Jesus. I pray in His name. Amen. Let's continue in prayer for just a couple of minutes.